There's a battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. And good evening, and welcome to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. I'm so happy you've tuned in. This is a week so bursting with news. It's just killing me that we can only have two hours to talk tonight, but I'm just so happy you've tuned in. Love doing this show and talking to you every week. Well, in this first segment, my Speak Up for America segment, I wanted to return to a subject we actually talked about on last week's Speak Up for America segment, which really isn't directly about America, except that it is. And this is about the vote in England. It has been called Brexit, and that just stands for the British exit, put the words together, Brexit, out of the European Union. Last week, we talked about the polls and the ideas behind it. This week, I want to talk about the outcome of that vote, which, as you likely know, the United Kingdom voted to remove itself, to become, to divorce itself from the European Union. And... This We're going to touch on this at various points throughout the show tonight because there are many tentacles to it. But one of the great things I wanted to mention about that is this. And now we'll come back to America. When America was founded, our idea at the time of the founding, our precious founders wrote down this idea that the country, that laws, that the purpose of a country is to protect the rights and liberty of the individual. The purpose of America's existence is to enshrine, honor, and protect the liberty of the individual. The purpose of government is to protect that liberty. That is that our founders turned America, turned the idea of government on its head when they came up with that idea. So America has been about independence. We had our own Independence Day coming up next week, as a matter of fact, is our anniversary of it, July 4th, where we declared our independence from England. What the voters in the U.K. did was declare their independence from the European Union. And, you know, there have been a lot of, uh, there's been talk in the media on all sides, and there were, of course, polling once again off and wrong, saying that the uh, two sides, really flipping how it, it came out, the way they refer to the two sides in this battle, this ongoing large battle in the U.K., the referendum, was you're either on the side of remove or you're on the side of stay. And the um, remove people or remain, excuse me, you're on the side of remain, which was to stay in the European Union or to leave, which was to, to exit, to get out of it. So you remain or you leave. Well, you know, it was a really interesting thing because part of what the people in Europe, in England were complaining about are astoundingly profound things. This just wasn't a little fuss about the euro and how much the euro cost or what the, whether the euro is a good or bad thing, which Britain wasn't even really engaged with the euro. This is about things like this. In England, because of the existence of the European Union, 60% of British laws are made in Brussels which is the, where the European Union is headquartered, 60%. Foreign judges decide whether those laws are legitimate. So this is already, you surrendered one of the, the profound, simple ideas of a country. In addition, the people in Britain who supported getting out of um, the EU, supported Brexit, they talked about the idea they wanted to recapture the right to deport foreign Islamist hate preachers and terror suspects without having to consider whether removing these people from their country 
violated EU human rights legislation. They had lost the right to control their country, their culture, their, their very country. So the concept that this was some, you know, uh, lightly thought through frivolous idea is crazy. What these people were saying about Brexit was, we want to run our country again. We're not going to surrender to an elite ruling class, in this case, the European Union board over in Brussels, but they want their own country back. They wanted to control it. And that was really that idea we're going to talk about later in the show is a really big concept being talked about in America in this election cycle. The question of whether or not we are going to allow a growing, burgeoning federal government to take more and more power in more and more avenues and places in American life. Whether we're going to continue to agree that Washington controls more and more of our lives and the content of the school curriculums in our country, whether it's going to whether the uh, EPA and its vast, expansive control over pretty much everything is going to be just saluted to and surrendered to, or are people going to stand up for liberty? That's what the people in England did. They stood up for liberty, for the idea of saying they have a country and they are entitled, in particular, to write their own laws, to control their culture. Immigration was a huge part of it. We're going to talk in the next segment how immigration is a really big issue in America in this election cycle this year, in this 2016 presidential election cycle. Immigration is a big thing. Also, we're going to talk a little bit about how the the dependency classes, the people who become dependent on government in one way or another, are the ones who continue to vote for big government in America. And they're the same ones in Brexit who voted to remain in the EU because they feel dependent. They didn't, independence and liberty kind of scared them. And that's kind of where we are in America. Independence, liberty, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, these are seen as scary things. And the longer you stay in being dependent, the harder it is to gain back that fervor and love for liberty. This is Debbie George and Ladies Can We Talk. After our break, we're going to talk a little bit about one effort by Texas Senator Ted Cruz to introduce legislation and talk about how the Obama administration is not protecting America and our immigration policies. Don't go away. Great show coming up. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. Just love talking to you every week on Sunday night and grateful that you've tuned in. You know, I was talking about Brexit before the break, and I want to say a couple other things about it. And this may not be something that all of you followed, but it's a very interesting thing. Some of you probably realize that President Obama actually spoke about this very vote before it happened. He spoke about the upcoming Brexit vote. And again, we're talking about Brexit, the vote by the members of the citizens of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union, the British exit or Brexit. And so that just passed this week. And there was a huge turnout, a massive turnout and in, in vote, first of all. And um, but prior to the time that uh, the vote happened, President Obama visited England and he spoke with um, the English people and actually said, this is the American president who's has it's just none of his business but he spoke and said to them that if if britain were to vote to leave the eu they would be sent to the back of the queue and for those of you who don't know the word queue it means back of the line he's essentially saying that america is not going to treat the united kingdom as well as we have in the past if they vote against the way president obama thought they should vote now i gotta tell you a couple things about that this is Number one, pure 
elitism on the part of this president. This is a president who loves elite big government in Washington. He loves the idea of an expanded federal government control over everything. He believes he and his fellow ruling elites are much smarter than the average person, much more entitled to be making the rules, imposing the rules. He is not a guy invested in the idea of liberty on which America was based. And this show is always and always about every single week the idea of embracing and protecting the exceptional identity of America. Know why it's exceptional. And one of the reasons it is exceptional is this idea of liberty. So President Obama went over to England. And again, keep in mind, this is England. This is not some country we have no connection with. This is an ally, an ally for, you know, like 100 years and more. So President Obama essentially threatened them that if they voted to leave the EU, that they, England, will go to the back of the line in dealing with America. And just think about all the things that, that England has done over the years as an ally of America. They, they, were, they had America's back at the time, um, uh, searching for allies in the Korean War in the 1950s. Winston Churchill promised in 1941 that if the Japanese were attacked the U, uh, to attack the U.S., the British declaration of war in Japan would be made within the hour these are the kind of things Europe has, uh, England has done over and over and over. They stepped up on 9-11. Right after 9-11, they were our allies. They helped in the war in Iraq. They have helped America at every step of the way. But this liberal elitist president thought it was his place to tell them they'd be punished for not making a vote affecting their sovereignty. So as a kind of funny um, outcome of all that, the big uh, advocate for this vote for, for the, in favor of Brexit to leave the European Union was the UK Independence Party leader named Nigel Farage. I believe if I'm mispronouncing his name, so sorry. Nigel Farage, who actually said this week that the visit by President Obama, where he threatened to send Britain to the back of the queue, back of the line, if the public voted to leave the European Union, that President Obama's threat backfired. It actually caused, as he said, a Brexit bounce, swaying Britons to vote for Brexit. You got to love this. And if you want to know this attitude we're talking about, it's not just President Obama. It's the, the, it has just permeated the left-wing elitism in Washington, this concept we're just a whole lot smarter than you, and we know it's best, and we're just going to pass laws until we're shut down by the courts, which, by the way, they have been recently. We're going to talk about that in a little later. But this attitude is so offensive to people, even to people in England, who kind of said, oh, shut up. Don't tell us whether what we have to continue to live under EU laws we don't like. That's cr- anyway, so I, I, I guess I love that story. I love that President Obama got his comeuppance, and he really did get his comeuppance. And... Um, what do you want to say? <laughs> I have my leading ladies here, so go ahead. You want to I say was just going to say, this is the guy that gave the Queen of England an engraved iPod loaded with his speeches. And, and, and sent back the bust of Winston Churchill. Okay, Correct. so he's kind of 0 for 3 with England, at least. Right. And or maybe, maybe got, 0 for 20. less than 200 days in office. Well, who's he to say what our policy is going to be towards England? Oh, yeah. He just this is this is a time this President Obama's just decided, I'm just so much smarter, and once again, I'm trying to 
rule. Well, I'll tell you this thing. This exit from EU also has implications. I mean, obviously, there was a stock market reaction. People are worried. But I want to tell you a personal tale that a friend of mine told me. She actually called me today to talk about the show uh, when she knew I'd be. She said, I assume you're talking about Brexit. So she's really active on Twitter. And on Twitter, she has friends. Uh, she's connected people on Twitter who are in England. So after the, the vote happened in the UK, and the vote was to, again, UK is going to leave the European Union she texted her friends, congratulations, it's the British Independence Day. That's great. Yay, whatever she said. She got a lot of replies back from people saying, what are you talking about? This is it's just terrible. The terrible things happened here. We're so upset. I mean, for one thing, these people in England sent her back messages on Twitter saying, we need the EU because they help fund the National Health Service. What are we going to do without the EU money for National Health Service? And I tell you, folks, this is this dependency that is so insidious and unseen. Let me tell you something about national. As she said back to them, number one, England pays enormous taxes into the EU. The EU is just sending you back your own money. This is not, they're not giving you money. They're giving you back some of your money. Number two, the EU has only existed since 1993. The British Healthcare Service, which provides allegedly free health care, has been in existence since 1948. So between 1948 and 1993, somehow England survived without the EU's money. But all of a sudden, we're so into being dependent, or the British citizens are into being dependent, that this was a reason to fear getting out of the EU. And actually, the way the the votes broke down, we'll probably talk about this more later, but... The way the votes broke down had a lot to do with where you lived and how you live, just like in America, when we have the big liberal city, city liberal dependent, big, big dependency groups, they vote for big government. You have Heartland America, Texas, by the way, and Heartland America. Yeah. We vote for liberty. We're like, yay, we love liberty. That's us. So this was the same thing in England. They had Scotland and Ireland, which tend to be more dependent, voting to remain because we need their money. We need their help. This, this spirit of independence, and we're going to talk about, my show next week is just 100% dedicated to what liberty in our Declaration of Independence means. But part of it is to sow that spirit of, of freedom and self-reliance. Okay, I got to hit one more thing. Are you, uh, I was just going to say one thing. And by the way, England happens to be either number two or number three of the largest economies giving money to the U.N. I mean, the, the U.N. I say U.N. because it's equivalent in my idea, mind to the yeah. EU. <laughs> but yeah. um, the EU. And with the EU, they're going to be hurt more by England leaving than England is going to end up being hurt in the oh, end. Absolutely. It'll take about two years to sort itself out, and then there we go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something else. Relating back to America and tying on to the, thing, the story I want to hit for just a second— because after the break, after 6.30, we have a guest coming on the show, Phil Haney. He is the author of See Something, Say Something. He's a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security. And now he's a whistleblower for the Department of Homeland, not for them, against the Department of Homeland Security. But the stuff he would tell you is mind-blowing. And this is a great actually seg- actual segue. You know, part of what the people in England were complaining about was exactly this we can't take charge. We have neighborhoods taken over by by Islamic, uh, you know, new refugees. We can't impose our laws there. We can't protect ourselves there. And their their right to keep themselves safe is limited by the EU, much like the right and ability of Americans to keep ourselves safe is limited by what President Obama and the left does. But here's my two quick things. What do you think in the last, since 9-11, the terrible 9-11 of 2001, 
There have been 580 terror convictions in the U.S., 580. You want to guess how many of those were terror convictions by foreign-born people, refugees here, or maybe people who had acquired citizenship, but foreign-born? 380. Way over half of the terror convictions in America are of people that we welcomed here, Mm -hmm. that we brought in, or who sneaked in, whatever they did. We imported them. Yeah, Yeah. we 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 imported imported terror. (laughs) And then we can't figure, and so then Obama and the left can't figure out why the people are a little bit upset. Okay, so one last thing, which I want to go back to maybe the second hour of the show, but Ted Cruz, the U.S. Senator, we love Ted Cruz on this show, he has actually scheduled a hearing on the cover-up of Islamic terror by the Obama administration. Now, we're going to touch on little things like Loretta Lynch trying to edit what the Orlando killer said, or Orlando jihadist killer said. Terrorist. When he, terrorist, when he called in and said he's pledging allegiance to ISIS, and Loretta Lynch wanted to wanted to redact that. She thought the Americans shouldn't get to hear that. But Ted Cruz is actually opening hearings in the U.S. Senate on the cover-up of Islamic terror by the Obama administration. This has been a long time coming. And folks, you do not want to miss this next interview. This is with Phil Haney, uh, former DH officer. See something, say something. What he will t- He's a whistleblower, and he will blow your whistle. You won't believe. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I'm so excited to have our guest on with this uh, for half an hour. His name is Phil Haney. We have him on the line, and he is the author of a book, See Something, Say Nothing. The title ought to make you ask questions. Good evening, Phil. Howdy. Glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and I will tell our listeners, I... uh, I had the great opportunity to meet Phil Haney a couple of times in the last few months, and he is a was actually a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security, and his book, See Something, Say Nothing, is a brilliant title capturing your experience serving in the Department of Homeland Security and realizing how much of what you were doing, the government and truth you were tracking down, the government wasn't interested in knowing. But I want to start before that and tell you, I started reading your book, and just even the first few chapters, I just was amazed by how much detailed work goes into connecting the dots to figuring out who are threat, who is a threat. So can you describe a little bit about what you do within the Department of Homeland Security to try to figure out who are the threats to America, the, who are the Islamic terrorists, and how are they coming here? How do you go about all that work? Well, it's a combination of a lot of moving parts. I call it the carburetor, you know, one of the most complicated parts of the engine, taking it apart and putting it back together. But when I did cases, I'd always start out with a spreadsheet, just a blank spreadsheet, and I'd start filling in blanks. And in the way I build a probable cause case is to focus not only on the individuals, which you hear a lot of in these terrorist attacks. They always talk about Syed Farouk and Tashveen Malik and Omar Mateen and, and uh, Nidal Hassan and people like that. But what they don't look at most of the time are the organizations. So I start putting together a spreadsheet of the organizations and the individuals, and I just start working, tracking, doing analysis, looking on their own websites, and then using the classified information that we had, I would put the picture together. 
until I get kind of a composite, if you will, of not only individuals that are transiting back and forth between these organizations or mosques, but the mosques and organizations themselves. Pretty soon, you have what we call a network. So if you have a organization that has derogatory information, that by default, at least in the early days of Department of Homeland Security, was enough for you to uh, upgrade your scrutiny of individuals that were coming and transiting back and forth to those mosques, for example. And we just build on it like bricks in a wall. And pretty soon you come to a point of probable cause. And that's what ends up getting individuals put on, let's say, the no-fly list or deported or refused entry to ever come or not get a visa. You know, there's a whole variety of what we call law enforcement actions that can be taken once you've accumulated enough information in the case. Okay, so Phil, I love what you're describing. And again, tonight, if you just tuned in, we're speaking to, with Phil Haney, the author of See Something, Say Nothing. And I had mentioned, I was so struck starting your book, realizing the in-depth work. You kind of think of someone who's investigating terrorism as a high thriller, like one of those um, you know, novels where you're just in danger every moment and zipping around the world doing high-risk things. But actually, the incredible detail and patience and determination, tenacity to uncover links and identities and what schools they've attended and who they've connected with and how they met with other people, all of that is a very, uh, you know... And I'm getting to a point, which is what you did was not just a broad sweep. You know, every Muslim is a possible terrorist. Every Muslim should be someone we suspect. It was profoundly intricate, detailed work that caused you to to come up with some probable cause um, findings, I guess you call them, with certain people. So I want to fast forward to now then. You've been interviewed recently in several media sources essentially talking about the idea that you helped identify people and groups with terror links ever since 9-11 and that you've been profiling individuals. And at the end of the day, perhaps you may have been able to stop the San Bernardino attack, but your work within the Department of Homeland Security was shut down. So can you tell our listeners about that? Yes, the case that I'm referring to, we called it the Tablighi Jamaat Initiative. Tablighi Jamaat is a similar organization to the Muslim Brotherhood except that they originate in the Asian subcontinent, meaning India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, some over into Afghanistan. They uh, have a school of Islam called Deoband. Deoband is a city in north-central India. And in the 1860s, during the Hajj, the people from that part of the world found out that the people in Saudi Arabia thought and believed exactly the same way terms of Islamic law. And so they formed a kind of an alliance, and that's why you hear so often Saudi Arabia supporting the madrasas in those parts of the world, because they are actually ideologically exactly the same. So Saudi Arabia supports these schools, uh, Islamic schools, and they graduate individuals out of these schools. Some of them become members of what we know of as the Taliban. Taliban just means student. It's the plural of the word word Talib, but they're students of Deobandi School of Islam. Another big group in that part of the world called Lashkataiba. They are the ones that did the Mumbai massacre. And another big group from that part of the world is one I particularly focused on. It's called Tablighi Jamaat. 
Tablighi Jamaat means party or group of promoters. And what they do is they travel around the world, different countries, in groups of two or three or four. And I noticed back in 2006 that they were coming into the United States through my port, which was Atlanta. I would interview them, and I would find out, where are you going? And they would always have these letters signed by the imam of the mosque. Let's say it was in New York, in Corona, Queens, New York, signed by an imam that was already on our radar. So right there you have a starting point for a case. If you guys are going to see somebody that we already have on our radar, the chances are pretty high that you're, you're involved in some things maybe you shouldn't be. And so by working together with my colleagues up at the National Targeting Center in Washington, we put this big case together called the Tablighi Jamaat Initiative. I ended up going to Washington and working on the case in the year 2011. Fast forward to about the middle of 2012, and we got a visit from the Department of State, seven lawyers and three SESs. Those are executive-level directors. They sat down in a room upstairs at the NTC, and they said, we have concerns about your focus on Tablighi Jamaat because they're not a designated terrorist organization, and basically we're concerned that you might be violating your civil rights and civil liberties because you're assuming that they're all terrorists. Well, that wasn't really what we were doing. We had 1,200 law enforcement actions based off that case, the Tablighi Jamaat case, in about nine months. Again, those are refusal of entry, cancellations of visas, those kind of things. I also was commended by National Targeting Center for finding 300 individuals with possible links to terrorism. Despite all that, they shut the case down. I went back to my port. I worked on another component of that case, and that is the 67 records that you may have heard me talk about before that subsequently linked directly to San Bernardino, the Dar al al-Islamiyah Mosque in San Bernardino, and the Fort Pierce Mosque, the one that Omar Mateen went to, direct link to both of them. So my plausible premise is that if we had simply been allowed to keep working and doing what we're doing before, connecting the dots, that is highly probable that we would have prevented the attack. And the sad irony is that we wouldn't even have known it. We only know when we fail. We don't know when we're successful because nothing happens. But we- we're cops, you know? Yes. We're speaking with Philip Haney, who is the author of See, no- See Something, Say Nothing. And we have just about a minute in this segment, and then we're, he's going to come back with us after the break. But part of what we have in uh, in reading this book, and I really urge our listeners to, to read it. Honestly, I, I got to the part with the, the name of the group that you have pronounced perfectly, I'm sure, this entire show. Tablighi, I couldn't even find how to pronounce that in line, but Tablighi, Tablighi Jamaat. But the point of it is, we Americans think we're well-informed because we've heard of Hamas or we've heard of the Taliban or we've heard of just a few of these groups or Al-Qaeda. But there are literally dozens of groups, organizations, schools, missions, people involved in terror. And it takes diving in like Philip Haney did in his work at DHS 
to to connect the dots to figure out who these people are that they may be problematic so we don't have so we're with all with the effort of course to prevent more attacks like San Bernardino, Orlando, Boston, Fort Hood, all the other ones we've had in America. And so when we come back from the break, what I want to talk with Philip Haney about is what the reason was that his investigations were shut down by the Obama administration and uh, whether it was political correctness that really led to danger in America. This is Debbie George Ass and Ladies Can We Talk. Come right back and we'll keep on talking with Philip Haney. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. We are continuing a, a fascinating, if alarming, conversation with an American citizen, an actual friend. We've, I've met him several times, named Philip Haney, author of See Something, Say Nothing. And Philip Haney was a Department of Homeland Security, actually a founding member, a uh, just a dedicated worker within the Department of Homeland Security, who dug in and did some investigative work we were talking about before the break, which caused him to raise alarm bells about a particular group, um, not just one particular, about many groups and different individuals. But what I want to get to now is you, Philip Haney, were told in 2012 by the Department of Homeland Security to stop investigating particular groups that may have allowed you to get to, uh, allowed you to have ultimately prevented the San Bernardino um, um, attack by keeping those two folks out of our country. So what do you, what was the reason that the Department of Homeland Security gave you for shutting down the investigation you were doing? Well, we've, the Judicial Watch, the organization in Washington, D.C., came alongside and helped me, and we FOIA'd Freedom of Information Act, we call it FOIA-ing, my case through the Department of Homeland Security. And over after about a year, we got four caches of documents. We didn't actually get anything that we originally requested. They sent us a bunch of other stuff that was somewhat redacted, but still discernible. And in those caches of documents, we found the emails going back and forth between the different branches of uh, DHS and Civil Rights and Civil Liberties branch and Department of State. And they state quite, quite plainly the reason they're shutting it down is because of concerns about civil rights and civil liberties violations. But we have to recall that these are not American citizens we're talking about. These are foreign nationals. And uh, after the San Bernardino attack, the, uh, they made a public statement, the HSCRCL, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. This basically proved my whole premise. They said that the reason they didn't query Toshmeen Mollick's social media is because they were concerned about violating our civil rights. And that was essentially, in a nutshell, the whole reason why they shut these big macro cases down, because they, are, they have a higher concern for the civil rights and civil liberties of uh, people coming into the country than, in my opinion, they do for the, protecting the, the civil rights and civil liberties of U.S. citizens from attack. You know, Philip, I am just... I mean, I'm here tonight, actually, with two of my co-host leading ladies, and we're all just staring at each other, just shaking our heads. You know, I think that Americans assume 
pretty much that the federal government's number one job is to protect the safety and security of the American people. And that job extends to protecting us to the best of our ability from keeping terrorists from entering America and monitoring people here who engage in suspicious activities with the goal ultimately of potentially shutting them down, sending them home, arresting them. And and yet what you're really saying is it sounds like it was more of a motivation by the Department of Homeland Security, along with the State Department, to protect the civil liberties of non-U.S. citizens who they thought maybe you were targeting because they were Muslim. That was a bigger goal of protecting kind of a PC-ish protect against possible discrimination to the detriment of American security. Well, that's right, because uh, you'll if you look at Eric Holder's legacy, that's what I call it, he left a parting gift to law enforcement in December of 2014. They were called the New Guidelines for Federal Law Enforcement Officers. And even though it's kind of complicated language, to paraphrase it in simple terms, you cannot develop cases based on religious affiliation, period. It doesn't matter what that religious affiliation might be. You're not allowed to develop cases, and if you do it, they will come after you for discrimination bias. I'd like to ask you a rhetorical question to go back to our your observations about these other networks that are operating in the United States, like Tablighi Jamaat. What is the reaction that we hear every time we hear about an attack happening in the United States from the administration? Every time they say... We don't see any evidence of involvement with the foreign terrorist group, right? Yes. But they never finish the sentence. What about the ones that are already here in the United States? And what they're doing is they're giving the American public a false assurance of the reality of the nature of the threat we face. I'm not trying to say this to be scaring people, but what I'm trying to say is that until we come to the point when we're told by our elected officials and people in authority, the true nature of the nature of the threat we face, we're going to keep seeing the same thing happen over and over again, because we're not being told, we're told half-truth. Yeah, they looked at Syed Farouk's phone, and they said, the FBI, I mean, that they didn't find any links to foreign terrorist networks. But they didn't say a word about the network that I we discussed earlier. The fact that the Darulum al-Islami Masjid right there in San Bernardino is linked to a whole network of other places like that across the United States. And so people assume, because of the words that are used, that if they're not connected to ISIS, then everything must be okay. But ISIS is just one branch on the tree. Tablighi Jamaat is another branch on the tree. There's lots of branches and those branches overhang North America, if you will. I like to also use the illustration of a solar system, just like our solar system. There's different planets, and some of the planets have a lot of moons. We have asteroids and comets and everything all circulating around the sun. And that is a common factor in the world, Islamic world. There's a lot of different planets orbiting around the sun, but in this case, the sun, the gravitational force that keeps all those planets in orbit is Sharia law. And that's where we need to shift the discussion to. When we talk about terrorism or violent extremism or even jihad, those are all tactics. 
So we have to understand what are the tactics for? What are these things that they're doing? What's the goal? The goal, the strategy, is implementation of Sharia law. That is the global driving force. That is the gravitational force that moves all these different Islamic groups forward. Is their mandate, according to the Quran, chapter 2, verse 2, I mean 191 through 193, that to implement the, the, the law of Islam everywhere in the world. And that is why you see 28,000 different jihad attacks since 9-11 somewhere in the world, about once every hour. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. There's a reason for it, and that is implementation of Sharia law. So what we need to do is come back to the Constitution, like I heard in your promo before the show started. Come back to the Constitution and compare the Constitution to the provisions of Sharia law, and then no one can accuse you of being a bigot or a racist or an Islamophobe because you're standing on the solid foundation of the Constitution. That's the only thing that's going to give us the strength to find the wherewithal to recover ourselves. Political narrative will never work. It has to go back to the Constitution, and fighting tactics like jihad and terrorism are like a changing kaleidoscope. They change, they're constantly morphing from one thing to the next to the next. Focus on Sharia law. That's what we need to do. You know, um, Philip, it's interesting when you say everything you just said. First of all, it was just fascinating. Um, and, you know, I've thought many times how Sharia is, is part of what many people point to as just, you know, as one goal we should all understand that is it emerges from Islam, it emerges from the Quran and from uh, other writings and from and other writings of the early Islamic scholars. And it is something that is a is a logistical and logical target to say this is something we can't have here in America. We can't have Sharia and the Constitution. But back to your point a moment ago when you were saying that the people within Department of Homeland Security thought you were unfairly targeting Islam or members of, of the Islamic faith, Sharia is only in Islam. I mean, and this is part of the problem we have in America. It's not part of Catholicism or Lutheranism or Baptist or 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 the Baha'i faith, or Confucianism, or any other religion. It's only part of Islam, and it is interwoven, sadly, within Islam. There are religious beliefs about God and, and prayer, but it is interwoven. It's a conquest ideology. Islam is, from its inception, a conquest ideology. It's a military ideology. It is a political ideology, as you say, seeking Sharia. So it just seems like we are, to argue that, Focusing and preventing terrorism, focusing on uh, on members of people who are members of Islamic faith, it's it's what else would we focus on? It's not because we it's not because of the purely religious beliefs. It's because Sharia is interwoven with Islam. Well, any of the listening audience that shoots, let's say you're a law enforcement officer, active duty, we all have to qualify every quarter with our service weapon. It's part of the job. So we have sometimes we have shooting scenarios where we where we move or the target moves, or in other cases we have targets that turn on a split second and we have to fire for let's say three seconds and then stop. Well, if we shoot at a moving target and refuse to follow the target, we're just shooting into space. We're going to waste our ammunition. 
If, but if we know where the target is going to end up, down in that corner, so to speak, then we aim in on that place and we wait for the target to show up. That's kind of the difference between strategy and tactics. Basically, what we're doing is shooting at moving targets. And sometimes we don't even see the target at all. We're essentially shooting into the dark. Wow. Okay, we're speaking with Phil Haney, and uh, we're about finished with this segment, but he's the author of See Something, Say Something. This was so illuminating and interesting and kind of scary. But, Phil, can you tell our listeners, besides getting your book on Amazon or in bookstores, where can they go learn more information about you and what you're doing? Well, I don't have a website, and I'm not on Facebook because I was underground for so long. There's a pretty good bio of me on the Amazon website. You can start there and then just query my name and you'll find a lot of shows and radios and TVs that I've been doing, plus articles. I've written a lot, too. So you can. there's a lot of print articles out, probably about 150 or so in the last few months that you can find pretty easily. Love that. Phil Haney, thank you so very much for being out with us tonight. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. for our second hour roundtable on Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is our second hour roundtable. I welcome my leading ladies, Jenny McGarry, Carrie Kellman here tonight. They've actually been here the first hour chiming yeah. in too, which has been really fun. <laughs> they just, we're just too excited. Anyway, in this very short segment, the top of the hour segment, I always try to go with one question, two rapid fire answers. And my question has to do with what we were talking about at the beginning of the show about Brexit. And there was a, uh, as you know, England voted to get out of the European Union. And Van Jones had a few uh, choice words for that. I'm going to let quick play Van Jones clip. I know you don't want to hear this, but tonight, while we're all just Netflixing and chilling out, not paying attention to anything, the UK just voted to leave the European Union, so-called Brexit, Britain (laughs) exit, Brexit. You haven't cared about it. Nobody cares about it. It's just summertime. We're all happy. This is the end of the world as we know it. Okay? (laughs) Please take this seriously. There is Mr. Van Jones. As a small aside, I want to tell you a little bit about who that is. And so I Googled him. If you look at Wikipedia, you'd think he was a Boy Scout. And then you go to the real sources. This guy, Van Jones, he's actually a radical communist activist, briefly employed by the Obama administration before they said, wait a minute, he's kind of showing everybody who we are. Just a radical leftist. And he's hysterical. His clip goes on for 11 minutes. It's a self-made video we put in his Facebook page on and on and on about what crazy person would vote for Brexit because after all, they must be ignorant, stupid, uninformed. Forget all the words he said. Anyway, and then he compared them to Trump voters. Totally seriously. So here's my one question, 
two rapid fire answers. Start with Carrie. Oh, wait, one last thing. So Hillary Clinton. So here we go. Hillary Clinton's answer or her statement on after Brexit was the Brexit vote only underscores the need for calm, steady, experienced leadership in the White House. Yeah. Okay. Trump's answer was people want to take their country back. They want to have independence in a sense. And you see it with Europe, all over Europe. So the question is, uh, Jenny, Jenny McGarry is going to go first, <laughs> which was, what, if anything, does a Brexit vote mean for the fall elections here in the great United States? God save the queen. Seventy <laughs> percent of people, I mean, 70 percent in polling, people have said that the United States is on the wrong track. And guess what? We're mad as heck and we're not going to take it anymore. And if you don't put America first, then you're not going to win the election. Yes. Amen, sister. I mean, that, that is what this vote was, is put Britain first. Yep. It, absolutely. In fact, there is a group called uh, Britain First. Yep. And I think there should be an every country first. Every citizen living in every country deserves a government that puts the needs and interests of their, in, their citizens first before they do people who live outside that country. And this is a win for people who want uh, their government to represent them. Uh, uh, Pat Condell, who's on YouTube, says, if you cannot vote out the people who make your laws, you live in, under tyranny. There's no That's other way to That's a great quote. Who said that? Uh, Pat Condell. He's all over YouTube. He's a Brit and uh, was pulling for Brexit. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know that guy. Okay. Yeah. If you can't vote out the people who make your laws, you live under tyranny. But that's our, that's a new slogan. We got to try to say more often. I have the same reaction. I know a lot of people in the media were trying to say, this isn't, it doesn't really matter in our election cycle. This spirit of hmm. don't you treat us like you are the ruling class mm-hmm. and you, you know, that we just have to listen to everything you say, mm-hmm. salute, put up with you, put up with an EPA, put up with your ridiculous mm-hmm. regulations everywhere, put up with rising taxes put up in america with this growing feeling that you're Mm -hmm. just surrendering our identity as a country this is why this feeling that Mm -hmm. gave the cause that england to vote to get out Mm -hmm. or britain to vote to get out is the same feeling that caused the people to get behind donald trump Mm -hmm. just we want you to act like america matters yep Exactly. And and we're tired of people not recognizing the fact that we respect our borders, that we respect our culture, and America must come first going into the years ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got to tell you, this Van Jones guy we just heard, one of the things he was saying was, my gosh, these crazy people in England, they don't even like immigration. They don't like people who don't look like them. They want they just want people who look just like them. That whole, uh, whole determination to attack anyone who doesn't agree with your views and kind of subtly call him a racist. That's what Van Jones was saying. It wasn't that long ago that England said you better not leave the military base dressed in the British uniform or you might get accosted on the streets. Did we not have a British soldier beheaded in the streets of London? Uh, yes, we actually That's had right. that happen. So this is this kind of thing, we tend to sweep it under the rug, but you're we're watching. Uh, you cannot say we're bigots. You can't call the British bigots for wanting to deport somebody who's going to behead your citizens. You know, yeah, go ahead. But I was going to say the biggest story about this is that this is the first time we have seen a country, their people, take control of their own message, that the media wasn't able to control mm-hmm. it, that outside factors were not able to control it, that they knew what they wanted, and they voted with ink pens. Even Obama couldn't couldn't influence it. He helped. I still love, yeah, he helped. <laughs> yeah, he helped. Well, you know, actually, on a serious note, this Van Jones trying to call it racist— 
what England was facing was their inability to have their own, to pass their own laws, mm -hmm. to make their own immigration policy, to remove people who mean, as just Carrie was saying a moment ago, to cause them harm. This is like in a vote for liberty. Mm -hmm. And as you know, on Ladies Can We Talk, we love liberty. We talk truth about America. Come back after our break, and we have a whole lot more great stuff to talk about. Don't go away. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Hey, I meant to say something at the beginning of the show and I forgot. Uh, this is our last week, actually. This is the last week of Ladies Can We Talk. And the reason I say that is we are changing our name. Starting with next Sunday, July 3rd, which is our big July 4th Independence Day show, the, na the show's name is changed to America Can We Talk. And that change is coming in part um, because I've had a lot of input from people who have said, well, gee, I thought your show was only for women. I thought it was only about women's issues. It was just a ladies thing. And this show, if you're a regular listener, you know, it is for everyone. It's about all of the issues. We used to say all issues are women's issues, but the show is just about America, preserving this precious, astoundingly important country in all of world's history, the most important country in all of world's history in terms of raising the idea of liberty and the freedom of the individual. So the show's name is changing to America Can We Talk, same content, same leading ladies, about new title, and um, some other new stuff coming with it we'll tell you about next week. But right now I want to go back. We were talking a lot in this show about the kind of elitism that uh, really the vote uh, of the people in the United Kingdom to get out of the European Union in part, what they were rejecting was elitism, just this idea that there's a ruling class in the EU and they they tell England what's what about their own security, their own policies, their own laws. And so it's a fabulous, fabulous message to the world. Well, there's an issue. Um, there are many, many issues that you could say kind of spring out of the problematic elitism growing in the world. And it's partly a globalist mentality. Globalism is another kind of elitist idea. One world, smartest people get to rule us and the rest of us have to be quiet. But I want to talk about a specific thing that's happening in uh, right now in America and California. And this is just a miniature example, but it's one that's been in the news repeatedly in the last several months. It has to do with this all transgender, transgender identity and all the, the laws being um, kind of just... Uh, you know, sent out from Washington in the form of orders, uh, executive orders or policy statements, threats to cut off money to states if they won't go along. This isn't even in federal law yet. You realize gender identity is not even in federal law. It's just federal agencies getting pushy. But in California, what's happened, there's a bill pending, and it passed one house. I believe it passed the California Senate. It's now in the California Assembly. And it is a law that would apply to colleges, not just private, but public college, not just public college, but private too, that essentially says those colleges cannot discriminate based on uh, all sorts of LG LGBT concerns. Gay and transgender students are going to be protected by this law. So some colleges, especially Christian colleges, are saying, wait a minute, what, what exactly does this mean in terms of our right to have a college centered on Christian values? Or even if you aren't a Christian college, many just conservative colleges. As one tiny example, you have girls' dorm, boys' dorm. We had that. But this law would say, so if a person who is a male 
says, today I gender identify as a woman. I get to live in the girl's dorm. They would have a claim under this idiotic California proposal. So it's an elitism thing. And Jenny's been reading Absolutely. about it. She was, she would this, pile is, on. this is all put on by a person by the name of Senator Laura. He is a openly uh, uh, gay member of the uh, California Senate. You know, we, we, we can respect what you do personally in your personal life. And there is expectation that we respect the LGBT community, which, of course, there is a respect for that. But in return, we should also have respect of our religious communities. And I don't just mean the Muslim community. I mean <laughs> mm-hmm. all of them. Mm-hmm. This is a law that basically can say if you go to a, say, a Catholic university there and part of the requirement is that you have to go to mass or you go to theology class, a student can sue saying that they were made to feel uncomfortable because of that requirement. This is at a private parochial or Christian university that you know what you're getting into when you go there, that you know that this on the outset, but it is no longer going to be tolerated that you are able to practice your religious beliefs within a religious institution. And this is wrong. This is wrong. It's so wrong. And it's so much of that elitist attitude. We and the high minded elected officials in California government, we know better than you. You silly little religious school about what values matter, what about what should be true, what should be right, what's right and wrong. They're going to decide not the Holy Scriptures, not your pastor, your priest or your faith informing what's right or wrong, but the government. It is taking the place of God. Mm-hmm. It is astonishing. So this is there, it hasn't passed the California Assembly. There is some pushback. Some of the more, um, I mean, it actually has a kind of an interesting array of groups challenging the law, saying, "Wait a minute, you know, this goes a little too far here." But this is, you know, as many ways you can spring off a discussion. Certainly, religious freedom is one. But just it, it's again, it's this ruling elite, smarter than the people, smarter than the silly Christians, smarter than the people who think values come from somewhere besides the government. This is that elitism, just and, and it's rampant in California. And, and it's also just the idea that the First Amendment doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, you have you have this group of people that, you know, although we want to be respectful of communities, we're going to totally not respect the Christian or the Jewish faith. It's funny. When, when they talked about the schools that they were targeting, I didn't hear anything about any Muslim schools or schools of, of different religions, but specifically Christian schools. And they're going to take this to the Supreme Court if it gets challenged. Hey, didn't you tell me that in this California case, one, just uh, people in the, in the legislature were talking about whether they should ultimately apply this law down yes. lower levels of yes, school? Yes, they're talking. There, there has been conversation about applying this to not only Christian schools at the university level, but also at the K through 12 level, mm. that religious schools should not be able to discriminate in any way. Uh, in looking at the LGBT community, even though this might be something that's part of their faith. Okay. We know, I'm glad we gave them, if you, uh, if we have listeners in California, if you're listening online, you ought to write a letter to your state assemblyman, your state um, or woman, or your state senator, and tell them, you know, I want you to fight this. I want you to stop it. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, I want to go back again, because it's such a big story, this, this Brexit thing. And the other aspect of this Brexit thing, I just touched on it, but... There's a feeling in America that part of what this election is about this year is about globalism, 
and kind of surrender of the sovereignty of American globalism versus national identity. Mm-hmm. And that was part of what some people say caused the Brexit, Brexit vote to succeed, the Leave side to succeed. Mm-hmm. I think Kerry was going to. Absolutely. It is a globalist versus nationalist election. That has been the axis. Saw it last fall. It was kind of new to me and thought, wow, I haven't quite seen it in those terms before. But sure enough, that's the way it's shaping up to be, not just here in the United States, but across the world. Uh, We're going to see it uh, in other countries in the European Union that are going to be wanting to hold their own referendums. I think France and Holland are next in line to hold a referendum. And there's three other countries, Spain, Greece, And Italy, I think, are the ones that are holding their hands up saying we want out, too. So, like we said earlier, people deserve to live under a government that puts the citizens of that country first. It puts their concerns, their welfare, their protection first. That's what every citizen deserves. But probably if Obama goes over to those countries and tells them that they're going to be in trouble, too— they won't vote to exit. Well, just like thankfully, Obama has just a few days left in well, office. Can we invite him over there? And <laughs> yeah, actually, you know what? That's true. We should invite him. him on a- <laughs> yeah, he actually should be a, a, a spokesperson Absolutely. for those campaigns. An ambassador for it. There Absolutely. we go. Absolutely. You know, and and the thing is, is exactly what you said, Carrie. And I know that we all three have been talking about the nationalist movement that we've seen mm-hmm. since they've changed a lot of their immigration policies mm-hmm. in the EU. And that we've seen it in, what was it, in Germany that we saw Cor- this? Correct. And I think that is the biggest, that was the biggest bullet in the EU was the migration crisis. Because what you had, especially in Germany, you had Angela Merkel, who was told by the oligarchs in Brussels that she needed to import 800,000. That's a good word, oligarchs. Go there ahead. we go. Uh, that she needed to import uh, 800 new workers or Germany's economy was in trouble. And so she sees these Syrian you know, these refugees, you know, looking for an escape from war and says, well, come on over to Germany and imports one million in 2015 alone. These people are not there to work. They're not there to assimilate. They are disruptive. They are raping the women. And when the German citizens protest, the German government turns the water cannons on the citizens. And the German media was not reporting, and the German media was keeping quiet about a lot of this. You are almost up to our break, and I want to tell our listeners, we have coming on with us um, at the 7.30 hour, someone, uh, you may have read his things many times, his name is Scott Ott. Scott Ott is just, first of all, very funny. He's a writer, he's a show host. You may have seen his work on PJTV, which he did a show for years on PJTV, which is an online, um, it, it actually went, it shut down in May of 2016, but uh, just brilliant with Bill Whittle and Steve Green, Stephen Green. Um, he also, they now have, they're self-producing a three-man show, which is called The Right Angle on BillWhittle.com. And Scott Ott, I actually have tried to get him on the show before and couldn't get him, I ran into him at a conference and I said, you have to come on my show so he's going to be on with us and he's just fun and we're going to talk about all the issues we've been talking about so far and a few more too including the democrat children's sit-in in the u.s house don't go away And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. In my second hour round table, I have Jenny McGarry and Carrie Kellerman here. I believe we have on the line Scott Ott. Hello, sir. Debbie. 
So glad we, we have you, Scott. We were uh, enjoying talking on the break about you and your work. Um, I think our listeners know your name, but Scott Ott is just a very entertaining man. Uh, he's an author, a writer. He's the He uh, has a YouTube channel, and he was for a long time on PJTV with um, Bill Whittle and Stephen Green. And honestly, my husband, I will just tell you, regularly used to email me from my desk, you got to go listen to this one. He would send me a link because we just loved how you three dissected issues. And so he's satirist, humorist. So welcome to the show, sir. Well, and now he can go to BillWhittle.com and see the same three guys. Uh, Stephen Green, Bill Whittle, and I are doing a show very similar to the old one from PJTV. This one's called Right Angle, and um, a lot of folks can see it for free and then become members if they want to at BillWhittle.com. Well, I love that membership model. You know, this isn't what I was going to talk to you about, but it is really true that because the media, because the Internet and social media give everyone so much ready access to almost every bit of information they could ever want— People who are contributing so much substance and depth as the three of you do, you know, it's hard to charge for it because people say, well, I can find that information for free. So what people are really doing in part is just enjoying your particular commentary, but also, and I've heard Bill Whittle make this point, and I don't know if it's BillWhittle.com or back when he had PJ media, but he was talking about the idea, you know, this is, I'm just asking for your support because this is, you know, we're providing all this content and it's kind of the way a person has to, it's, it's a way to support yourself to do this kind of work. So I would encourage our listeners to become members at BillWhittle.com. My husband and I did that. You know, the fascinating thing is, and thank you so much for that, and thank you, your husband, as well, for me. Um, but the fascinating thing is that people who become members at BillWhittle.com are getting a product, and they, they enjoy that. They get some members-only episodes that, that not everybody gets. But I can't believe how many times they tell me, look, the reason why I pay this nine ninety five a month is because I want this message to get out. And even if I didn't get anything for myself, you know, sort of behind-the-scenes stuff for myself, I would pay it just to make sure that this message can get out there. Yep, absolutely. Amen to that. Okay, so the first issue, I just I emailed um, Scott out earlier and said a bunch of issues. So the first I want to hit, and I said this, referred it, uh, uh, to this in this way in my email to you, was the Democrat sit-in, or um, someone was calling it the pout-in in Washington, but they sat on the floor uh, of the House complaining about wanting to have gun control. And so, um, and they were not going to allow any of the votes until they get a vote on, their, on the Democrats' gun control bill. And this was in response to Orlando. So many ways to go. But the first thing I just want to ask you, what is your impression? Do you think that the Democrats made political headway? Did they, did they get anything out of this? Well, I think what they did was establish that the party of cutting-edge ideas from the 1930s <laughs> is, also, <laughs> is also the party of cutting-edge tactics from the 1960s. Mm. And, you know, all, all I could think of is when those uh, Democratic representatives were dropping down to the floor to sit there, that there was a bunch of creaking and cracking noises that probably startled the people in the oh. gallery. And then, <laughs> and then some of those first alert uh, bracelets started going off. And, you know, <laughs> Somebody came on and said, yeah, that's right. We'll be right there, Mrs. Fletcher, or Representative Pelosi. Is this what they meant by floor vote? I think so. Yeah, Yeah. yes. And 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 I'm I'm thinking that it went on as long as it did simply because they couldn't get up. (laughs) I think I saw Pocahontas sitting Indian style. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can't even do that anymore. (laughs) That was painful. Okay. Okay. But I speak from personal experience, unfortunately. (laughs) 
Okay, so on a serious note about this for a second, you know, I do a Fox News Radio like political analysis, and I did it this past week on the subject of you know this kind of question. But essentially, you know, did the Republicans react well to this? Did they handle it well? And I thought they were just completely horrible because it seemed to me Orlando was a fabulous opportunity for the Republicans to talk about. We had Orlando happen because of political correctness invading national security practice, invading national security training. The FBI had this guy, the shooter in the Orlando thing and let him go and they have actually expressed concern that the people who had turned him into the FBI might be just anti, they might be Islamophobic or something. Yeah. And just the whole thing, the GOP should have said, these goofballs are talking about gun control. We're talking about protecting America. But did you have a reaction to how Paul Ryan and others um, handled this? Well, I mean, I was glad Paul Ryan did what he did as far as adjourning the House. I think that was the right thing to do and just put an end to the show. But but I do think that the Republicans frequently miss opportunities to make the case for liberty. And this is this is one of those opportunities where instead of arguing for um, keeping weapons out of the hands of law-abiding citizens, we should have been making the case that, you know, what a difference it would have made if even some of the staff members in that nightclub mm-hmm. had been armed and able to return fire. Um, you know, and maybe the slaughter wouldn't have gone on as long if someone could have defended themselves instead of, you know, having Democrats make the case for years and years that you have no right to protect yourself and you just have to wait. You know, only the government has the right to be armed. And, you know, the old the old saw that when uh, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. Yes, is we we saw that. I mean, the, the, our first responders do a fantastic job, but they can't get there before it happens and they can't get there, you know, at the moment it happens. So somebody, the first responder in the view of the framers and the founders of this country was the citizen. I love that. I love that idea. And yeah, the basic Second Amendment thing of, you know, it's an interesting thing because the uh, slogan the Democrats were using in this was no fly, no buy. And they're basically saying if you end up, if your name's on the no fly list, you should be among those just not permitted to purchase a gun. And uh, on a very serious note, my my lawyer background kicks in here, but this the idea of actually affording every single person due process They're essentially saying that they would support preemptively taking away a constitutional right with no hearing, no determination of your, I mean, in any goofball, I don't know, goofball, many people have authority within the government to put people onto a no-fly list and no judge has looked at it. No adjudications occurred. This is a, this is a real, I mean, you talk about a liberty issue, Scott, Uh, this is a liberty issue to me. Absolutely. I mean, already they're, they're attempting to strike down sort of 20% of the Bill of Rights. You know, they're going right for the Fifth Amendment and for the Second Amendment at the same time and basically saying that if the government suspects you, well, that's good enough. You know, whatever happened to equal justice under law, whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty, we're now going to become a country where we say if the government, you know, these people who we don't know, who are unaccountable bureaucrats in essence, I'm not saying they're bad people, but at what point does their hunch become something that justifies stripping you of constitutional rights? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the potential for mischief, I thought about this, you know, you could have a liberal government, a liberal administration putting names on like everyone who's ever been affiliated with a Tea Party could possibly yes. be yep. a terrorist. Yes. Or you could have a, conser- a conservative say everybody with a certain Islamic sounding last name, they're all on the no-fly list. The potential for mischief, and it's very difficult, you have to adjudicate your way off that list. 
Well, and mostly I'm concerned about this, those stinking Irish, because remember a few years ago, <laughs> remember a few years ago when Senator Ted Kennedy wound up on the no-fly list? They, they actually detained him at an airport. They said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Senator Kennedy. Your name is on the no-fly list, and it, and it apparently took him a while to get his name off of there. And he's a he's a senator, so you know we can't live in a country that executes so-called preemptive justice on the off chance that that one of these people is going to explode. Now, the the corollary to that is that we are going to have to live if we want to have a free society. We're going to have to live with a certain amount of jeopardy. And that's why, it, you know, that the argument follows, that's why the Second Amendment is so important. Yep. Because you should be able to protect yourself, because we don't want a country where justice happens preemptively upon suspicion. Absolutely true. We are speaking with Scott Ott tonight, and uh, you did say you can hang around uh, after the break, right, and do another segment? Yes, I can. Okay, great. We, don't, we still have a minute here, but I want to be sure before we get too close to the end. Um, this is a really important discussion to have for Americans, because I was thinking on the subject again of the Democrats saying, wanting to add, essentially make a federal law that would say, if you're on the no-fly list, you can't buy a gun. No fly, no buy. You know, there are other amendments that, I mean, the Second Amendment is extremely important. And if some other amendment were substituted in, like you lose your right to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, oh yeah, freedom you know, to be protected against an unlawful, unreasonable search and seizure, Everyone would get it and say, wait a minute, you can't take that away. But somehow, because it's a gun and it's scary to some people, it seems easier to grab the guns. And I think we have, there is a tremendous learning opportunity time for conservatives, for Republicans to speak up about these things, point out the Second Amendment is actually there for a reason. Exactly what you said, Scott, it is for people to be able to defend themselves, to be the real first responder, and to keep the balance of power between the people and the government, because the last thing you want is the government who's taken all the guns away. This is Debbie Georgiatis, Carrie Kellerman, Jenny McGarry, and Scott Ott, and ladies, can we talk? We come back, I want to turn talk about Obama's very bad last several weeks and how Several Supreme Court decisions have kind of gone against him and his, and we'll find out what Scott Ott thinks about that. So don't go away. We'll be back right after our break. And welcome back to the final segment of Ladies Can We Talk. Actually, the final Ladies Can We Talk show, because next week and forever after, the show is going to be called America Can We Talk. And before we get back with Scott Ott, our completely wonderful guest, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This show, Ladies Can We Talk, soon to be America Can We Talk, is sponsored by GC Works. They're a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Couldn't do the show without their support. Thank you very much. Okay, we're back to Scott Ott, Gary Kelman, Jenny McGarry. So we were talking in the break because there's about 17 subjects in only 11 minutes. It's weird how this works. So we want to turn to the Supreme Court gave President Obama a little slap on the hand with this uh, executive amnesty, amnesty decision. And Kerry was going to say something yeah, about Scott, that. Yeah, Scott, I wanted your take on that. Thursday was a really good day. I open up my laptop, I go to Drudge, and there it is in bright red that the Supreme Court has... Uh, slapped Obama down on his executive amnesty overreach. Can you give me some comments on that? Yeah, and the interesting thing is President Obama's response to the whole thing, but I'll get to to that in a second. Um, Basically, the Supreme Court split on the question because they are an eight-person court right now, and, you know, we're really 
feeling the loss of Justice Scalia uh, with every decision. Um, but basically, they said, no, 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 you can't just do something on your own initiative that the Constitution says has to happen through the legislative process, and you can't just basically treat a bunch of people who came here illegally as if they didn't, and grant them legal status, and grant them, you know, sort of working documents and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when the, but when the court said that, and basically let stand the lower court ruling, um, President Obama said, essentially, I'm not going to deport people who should be deported. I'm just, we're just going to make it a low priority to deport, the, to deport those people. So he, he can't grant them the kind of status he wanted to, but he basically said, you can stay as long as you want. Now, even if you're relatively, um, I don't know what, the, I'm a big liberty guy, and frankly, I, I hate the whole immigration process. I think it's a, it's a mindless bureaucracy in many cases, and it, it does more to punish decent people who want to come here legitimately uh, than it really does to restrict people who are trying to sneak into our country and, and mean mean ill to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if you even if you feel that way, you say, look, if it's if they came in illegally. Their, their status is illegal, and you can't just wave your pen and say that it isn't. So, uh, but the president has essentially, you know, raised his one of his fingers to the court and said, um, "I'm going to do what I please. Uh, basically, I'm not going to enforce the law." Exactly. This is an example of tyranny when the rule of law no longer applies. When he's saying, mm-hmm. "Yes, I didn't get my way, and I can't have my order, but I'm just not going to follow." What the law, which is the law that Congress passed, he's just not going to do it. It's a form of tyranny, in my view. Yeah, and and I think this the, people don't understand this sometimes. People who listen to your show certainly do. Yeah. But but the vast majority of Americans think in terms of, hey, what's the right thing to do now? What do we think should be done now? And they don't revert to those first principles. They don't revert to that to that framework of governance, which the Constitution was meant to be to carry us through the questions and the tides of public opinion that will change over time. And so if, you, if you're that kind of person, you, the first question should be, you, anytime you see any question, any issue, you should say, should government have anything at all to do with this? If government does have something to do with this, at what level should government have to do with it? Is it a local decision, a school board decision, a township, county, state, uh, federal government? And then the question should be, what branch of government should take the initiative in dealing with this? And so you really need to move through that template of understanding how our country was built in order for it to function properly. But this is why, you know, people don't change the oil in their cars and they don't do scheduled maintenance and they, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to use things the way they were designed and they break down. Mm. Exactly. And in in the sense of of Obama, the president was supposed to implement the laws given to him by Congress, not legislate them and then choose which ones he wants to implement. But I think Scott, yeah, Scott's point is great is that people listen to these things and their analysis just says, gee, what do I think the right thing is? What if I could decide and not, and this is, you know, Scott, I think you've heard me say this before, but my show is entirely about the idea of trying to preserve the precious, unique, exceptional nature of America. And among the things you have to preserve is what we're talking about. The rule of law, the idea that you don't have random people governing and able to become tyrants, able to become above the law because you lose that structure and stability that can only come when the rule of law actually exists and is applied. And the good news to folks who may think differently than I do on a particular issue is there is a constitutional process to get what you want. 
but it involves having to bring a lot of people together to make that happen. So what happens is when you use something like uh, executive overreach, basically what you're saying is, I don't want to take the time to build the public support to elect the right kind of legislators who legislators who or to persuade the legislators to support what I believe in. I want to make it possible for a small elite group of powerful people to change the course of American history by their own fiat, instead of saying, let's come together as a republic and decide this as a constitutional republic. Amen, brother. So, Jen, we're going to change the subject to Loretta Lynch. She's one of our favorite people. And uh, (laughs) just wanted to get your thoughts on... on The country singer? Is that Loretta Lynch? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, she did did do a little bit of singing around at those uh, Sunday morning shows that where she explained how she was leaving out certain parts of transcripts that we just didn't need to know. So what, what were your thoughts on that? Well, as usual, I mean, Debbie, yeah, and I'm, I'm just glad to be protected from those bits of knowledge that might be overwhelming for me because, you know, I can only take so much knowledge. <laughs> I think that those words are hard. Islamic I'm, terrorist <laughs> ISIS. Yes. That's, wow, that's scary. That's very scary to me. So, I, you know, I, I think that, once again, we have a small group of people in positions of power who do not have to answer immediately to voters who have decided what's right for us, and they will parse out the information as they judge appropriate. And there's no way we can question them on this, just like those, those courts for, or those, uh, those committees or, or individuals who put you on those no-fly lists or terrorist watch lists. There's nobody to go to and say, hey, I think, I think this is wrong, uh, because they say, well, how was this decision made? Well, we decided it in your best interest. It's exactly what it is. And, you know, I didn't hear why the ladies were telling me. We were, I was actually on vacation this week, and I missed a lot of news. And the ladies were telling me that, I guess, Obama threw Loretta Lynch under the bus when she, she came out on the show saying, we're going to redact portions of the, Obama, of the Orlando shooter's 911 call and take out reference to, um, I guess, she tried to put in God instead of Allah. She tried to take out ISIS and all that. But Obama threw her under the bus. I mean, he reversed that. Is that right? He said it was the DOJ, it was the DOJ's decision to do this. And it had nothing to do with him. Basically. Oh, I see. So, anyway, you know, ah. they got pressure. Basically <laughs> it wasn't her himself. idea to go around to the Sunday morning shows and say that. It wasn't his idea at all. He's hiding well, behind he, a girl. Well, yes. When he, <laughs> <laughs> behind her skirts, uh, as it were. Um, when, uh, when he came out, the, I think the day after, or maybe it was the day of that Sunday, and made that brief five-minute announcement and basically said, um, first of all, we got to make sure that uh, we don't uh, react against people of any particular background or faith or whatever. <sighs> so, you know, he had that anti-backlash statement that he makes, you know, just compulsively after these kind of things. And then he goes on to say, uh, we don't we don't know what the motivations uh, for uh, for this were. We have we don't know that, and time will tell, and the truth will come out. I'm like, oh really? Don't you know? Maybe the call that said, hey, I'm doing this, you know, because of ISIS and Allah. What he what he basically said, President Obama said, I know more about the motivations of the guy who was pulling the trigger than the guy who was pulling the trigger. Yes, yeah. he didn't mean that, really. I think there's a yeah, Monty he, Python sketch here somewhere. I know he said somewhere. it was Allah and Muhammad and a blah blah blah. But we know that he can't be right because Islam is a religion of peace. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. You know, you see these every time you see a a horrific headline come across your phone and you probably get those phone updates. And, you know, it's just it's a you have a struggle because.
because they'll say, you know, a number of people killed and injured, some horrible attack. And you're never thinking, no, Scott, my grandfather and uncles were all uh, Norwegian Lutheran ministers. And we always make a joke at our house. Those dang Norwegian Lutherans, that's probably them again, because it's not ever the Norwegian Lutherans. Radical Um, Lutherans. (laughs) Yeah. And so at some point, in fact, in the first hour of our show tonight, we had on Phil Haney. And you may know that name. He was a DHS guy. He's a whistleblower. And he wrote, see something, say nothing. And he talks about just being told, essentially, by the Obama administration, now you can't be singling out people of Islamic faith when he was connecting astounding dots of training in in these uh, Islamic schools in certain parts of the world and and who they taught and and where those people went and who they hooked up with. It was like we ha- they're in this perpetual denial of reality mode in the Obama well, administration. Yes, and, and we saw that in the situation in San Bernardino where some of the neighbors said, hey, things are looking a little strange at, at, you know, at the house across the street there. People coming and going at all hours and, mm-hmm. and, and see, everything seems sketchy. But nobody wanted to be branded as a racist or an Islamophobe or whatever. And so they didn't say anything. So now we've got, you know, they used to tell us, you know, be forthcoming tell us if you see something say something now it is if you see something and say something then you become the bad guy and then we start looking into your background and then you become blasted you get blasted in the media and you get branded as an islamophobe exactly it's so alarming and you know it just seems so i i think people are almost over over the term orwellian is overused we've said it so many times in the last seven plus years, Aurelian, but the the notion that you can't honestly say what the problem is, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's deeply disturbing and it's making us less secure. Well, you know what, we're, as as usual, we go uh, longer than we should. We are speaking with Scott Ott, and I want, again, to be sure our listeners, Scott Ott is a very entertaining, insightful, I could have raised any of 25 issues and he would be right on top and ready to roll. His new thing, Scott Ott's new thing is at BillWhittle.com and it's a a self-produced three-man show called The Right Angle, or Right Right angle, right? That's correct. I also do another satirical weekly news and review show called News Actually, and that's a combination of kind of my old Scrappleface satire site and a show and a, a news update. Okay, my husband, who is your supporter, has also sent me that information. I was supposed to put that in my notes, too. Scott Ott, thank you. It's been great talking with you. Thanks, Eddie. I want to thank our leading ladies tonight, Jenny McGarry, Carrie Kellerman. The hour, two hours went by just impossibly quickly. I want to thank you all for tuning in to the last show of Ladies Can We Talk. Next week will be America Can We Talk. We'll be back every week to talk about everything we need to talk about to save and protect this precious country. I'd love if you follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. And our website is just really fun now, ladieskenwetalk.org, soon to be americacanwetalk.org. And remember, we're always in Ladies Can We Talk. We talk truth about America. Come back next week. for listening to Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to ladieskenwetalk.org. Ladies Can We Talk, truth about America.